Well, uh, good morning again. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here, and um, it's a joy to have you with us. Uh, today we begin our series uh, for the season of Advent. Historically, uh, the church pauses in this season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and on the church calendar decides to retell and remember uh, the Christmas story, which is very fitting and very good that we would do that. Um, but we need to kind of reframe it. We need to kind of uh, rethink why is it that the church has historically done this? Why do we do this? Uh, Advent is a word that literally just means the appearing, the arrival, the arrival of someone very important. So in the ancient world, an emperor or a king or someone of nobility could show up in your town and show up in your village, and that would be the advent, the arrival of someone very important. But while you were waiting on the news that someone important might show up to your town or your village, you had no idea when the king, when the emperor might show up. And so this this practice of Advent came with it inherently in the art and the practice of Advent was waiting. Because you didn't know, is the king going to come on Saturday? Is the emperor going to come next Tuesday? We've just heard news that the king is coming. We've just heard news that someone very important is coming to our town. We must get ready. We must be ready. We have to have this expectation and this waiting uh, for the arrival, for the advent of someone very important. And so the church does this uh, in Advent season. Here's what we do. The church pauses in this season to remember the story of the first Advent of Jesus because the arrival of someone very important happened 2,000 years ago. The arrival of the king happened 2,000 years ago. And so what the church does is we pause and we retell and we remember and we put up Christmas decorations and we have this stretch of four weeks where we remember the first Advent but here's where it gets a little tricky and here's where the church and our own hearts need some retuning and need some remembering is that we don't do that. We don't retell the story of Christ's first coming. We don't do that just for nostalgia's sake. I, I love nostalgia. I'm potentially addicted to it, but we don't remember the story just to be sentimental about the story that happened 2,000 years ago. There's plenty of joy in nostalgia. There's plenty of good that can happen from just the remembering of the story, but that's not why the church pauses each season, each Christmas season, to retell the story. See, just like Israel was waiting on Christ's first advent, now the church, the new Israel, now the church is waiting on his second advent. And so here's this magical, mystical thing that happens in this four-week stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas and why the church pauses. We retell the story of the first advent to awaken hope for Christ's second advent. And because in this season of Jesus, we're, we're told you're coming back. Jesus, you've promised that you will advent among us again. Jesus, you've said you're coming, but just like an ancient advent of someone very important, we have no idea when that's gonna happen. And so the days can grow weary and the waiting can grow excruciating. Jesus, when are you going to advent among us again? And so over time, it becomes very easy to stop believing that Jesus actually will come like he said he did. And so we retell the story of his first advent, and here's the, the thing that hopefully happens in our minds and hearts, is we retell this story, the Christmas story, we remember it in this advent season, and hopefully we start to think this way, Jesus, it's hard to believe you're coming again, it's hard to believe that your second advent will happen, but you've come once before. And so let it build our hope and our confidence that you will come again by telling the story of your first coming. So we reawaken hope, for his second advent by remembering and retelling the story of his first. We're doing that a little bit differently this year. 
We're going to retell the story um, from the position of the Old Testament. We're going to retell the story of his first advent and look at people, look at the storyline, look at prophecies that promised the coming king. So we're looking at these four passages from the book of Isaiah that are prophetic passages. We're looking at these passages from Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet that was saying, hey, a king's coming, a king's coming, a king's coming. And so we're going to practice our own art and, and, and sacred practice of waiting by looking at people who were told to do the same. Isaiah, the, the book we'll be in, was a major prophet in the Old Testament. And prophet, um, it, it's hard to kind of um, untangle our brains from this definition, but prophecy is not just like fortune telling. It's not just like, hey, let me tell you something that um, is going to happen in your future. That was a part of what prophets did. But prophets were given a task. Prophets were assigned a mission to go to God's people and call them to repentance for the evil that they were practicing. And also to say, hey, in one day, let me tell you about what is coming to you. Let me tell you about the future that awaits you. Isaiah was a prophet 700 years before the first advent. And the nation of Israel was in disarray. The kingdom's been split. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah where the capital city of Jerusalem was. And Isaiah comes, and as this nation is walking away from God, Isaiah is pleading with them to return and repent to the Lord. And he's also telling them that, hey, if you don't repent, bad news is coming. You're going to be taken captive. You're going to be in exile. People are coming and will take your homes. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be bad. But then Isaiah also tells them of the future that awaits them beyond the judgment that's coming. And Isaiah's telling them about a Messiah that's coming. He's telling them about a king that's coming. He's telling them about a suffering servant that's coming. But then he's also looking beyond and he's looking into the kind of kingdom that that king will bring. He promises them that one day a king is coming, a suffering servant is coming, and that kingdom that he's bringing with him, in that kingdom all will be well. And so we're going to look at these passages all throughout Isaiah that's looking at the coming messianic kingdom and looking at the first advent hopes that these people had and what they had to wait on. And we're looking at them and we hope that it stirs in us the same kind of hope and the same kind of waiting, not just of the coming king, but of the world to come. So, Long intro, but if you will, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2 on your phones or in your Bibles. Uh, If not, it'll be on the screen for you to follow along. This is Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's a brief prophetic passage from Isaiah the prophet early on in his book. I still hear pages turning, so I'll wait. No, I'm kidding. You didn't do very good in your sword drills, did you? No, I'm kidding. Um... Here it is, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Would you pray with me before we dive into this text? Jesus, coming King, uh, who in this Advent season with Christmas decor around us and um, hopes of what a holiday season could deliver uh, almost being burdensome for us, would you come and would you free us, would you, would you rescue us from just practicing being optimistic or nostalgic? But Jesus, as we study this passage uh, from Isaiah where you were, you were infusing a people with hope, uh, would you do the same for us now as we look at your text and we remember the story of your first advent, would you awaken in us a belief and a confidence that your second advent uh, indeed is to come. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning that you've forgiven his sins for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, diving in real quick. Isaiah in this passage says some extraordinary things. Um, In three verses, verses two through four, Isaiah gives kind of this poetic vision of the great city of Jerusalem, also known as Zion. In three verses, verses two through four, Isaiah gives this hopeful, futuristic vision of what the city of Jerusalem will be one day. And we could dive in it line by line, but here's essentially what Isaiah says in these three verses of verses two through four of our passage. He says that one day, Jerusalem and all that it represents, one day, Zion, the city of God, one day, the dwelling city of God, will be the center of the world's pilgrimage. People will be drawn to it. It says a river, a river will flow up to it. It will, be, it will be effortless to get there. The world will be drawn to it. There will be worldwide revelation there. The Lord will divinely reveal himself to all the nations that are flocking to Zion. And then finally, Jerusalem will be the center of world peace. And the nations that are being drawn into Jerusalem for its peace and for its, uh, for its revelation and for the beauty and the divinity that's there, the whole world will be there. And so this vision of Zion, because Zion is becoming the epicenter, this glorious vision of the city of God, the whole world's being drawn to it. This doesn't just affect Jerusalem in the little corner of the Middle East. This is affecting the world. This vision of the world, or this vision of Jerusalem is the vision of the world. The world will be drawn to Zion in its glory. The world will be drawn to Zion in its beauty. And in so doing, the world will be restored. The pinnacle description in this little passage, in this poetic vision, the pinnacle description that Isaiah gives is given in verse four. Look at what he says again. You can throw this up again, Olivia. It says this. He, that's the Lord, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And then listen to this poetic imagery. And they, that's the world that's coming to Zion, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, so here's what he says. Not only will there be no more war anymore, which is incredible, but the horror of war is not just gonna cease and be no more. The horror of war will be transformed into something else. It will be redeemed and restored. It will be alchemized. It will be turned into something else. What formerly was destructive, what formerly was decimating, these swords that was and their spears that were used to kill people will be transformed into something else. But what will they be transformed into? Gardening tools. And you may go, well, I don't garden, so that doesn't excite me. You're missing the point. Here's what he's saying. 
The instruments that were formerly used to kill and destroy will now be transformed into instruments that will create life and flourishing. That's what the promise is. This promise of a world that would be like this where former instruments of war and division and hatred and decimation and killing and murdering that will be transformed into a world of peace and flourishing and joy that this world will not just, won't just have swords anymore but the former swords will be turned into something beautiful that will create a, a flourishing world. That vision is so captivating. That vision is so enticing. Do you know where that sentence of Isaiah chapter two verse four is printed? It's etched into stone outside the United Nations office because the world wants this to be true. Isaiah 2.4 is etched into stone outside of the organization that's trying to fight for world peace. That's our vision that one day this would be true of the world. It's also no accident that the future of Zion that's described here is described with garden language that's meant to be an echo of something, that's meant to awaken the Israelite and the Old Testament reader to remember something. This war-torn world will be restored to the Eden that it was made to be. The world will be Eden again. That world was full of bliss. That world was a theater of delight. And he's saying that world is coming again. The world that wasn't just had no war, the world that was Eden the way that it was intended to be. Do you realize what he's describing? Listen to what he says. One day, just like in the Garden of Eden, that the Garden of Eden is the place where heaven and earth were literally one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it was one place. It was called the Garden of Eden. And then sin decimated that, sin destroyed that, and we have been longing for that reunion ever since. Make heaven and earth one again. Please, Lord, would you re reunite our world with the heavenly place? Would you make it on earth as it is in heaven? Please bring them together again. And that's what Isaiah says will happen in Zion. The world will be the Garden of Eden again. The world will be the dwelling place of God again. That's what Isaiah says is gonna happen to the world. It's gonna happen in Zion, and that's figurative, but it doesn't mean Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. He may, he hasn't told anybody. No one knows, but he, it's saying that what is happening in Zion is going to affect the whole world, and peace will reign, and flourishing will reign, and joy will reign, and there will be no more swords. There will only be plowshares. They won't even know what war is anymore. They will just be loving each other. They will just be for each other. There will be no discord. There will be no more broken families. There will only be joyful relationships in a world that's full of beauty and full of delight. That's the world that's coming. And then did you catch, though, when he says it's going to happen? Verse two, and I kind of hate this. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Dang it. Which literally means, that phrase literally means the end of days. Like when days end, like when time ends, when there are no more days. At the end of time. Tell me this, why in the world, if Isaiah is trying to infuse hope into a group of people, why in the world is he talking about the world to come at the end of time? Why is he fast forwarding the tape all the way to the end of the story? Well, if you go back to chapter one, we're not gonna read through that or preach that, but let me summarize it for you because it's real bad um, and, it's, and it's real uh, descriptive. 
the Lord sends Isaiah. This is the opening passage of his prophetic book. Like this is, this is his opener. This is, his, this is what he's trying to draw people in with. And he says, it's really bad, guys. And not only is it really bad, but this place, this country, this nation has been so sinful, rebellious, laden with iniquity, he says. He says, because of all that, judgment is coming. He compares the nation of Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know your Old Testament, that's not flattering. He, he says, people of God, you have become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how detestable you've become to the Lord. And because of that, you're gonna be decimated. And then it gets worse. The Lord says in chapter one, I'm actually gonna use your enemies to bring judgment against you. The people who you hate, the people who you've been trying to fight off, I'm gonna let them take you. I'm gonna let them destroy you. And they're not just gonna destroy you and your families, they're gonna destroy Jerusalem which is the very center of your identity. It's the dwelling place of God. It's been your fortress. It's been where God has dwelled in the temple. And the Lord says through Isaiah in chapter one, it's gonna be gone. Because of your sin, because of your idolatry that I've called you back into repentance for hundreds of times, my judgment is coming against you. I'm gonna wipe you out with your enemies and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You will lose your identity. You will lose your fortress. You will lose your very sense of who you believe yourself to be. And then chapter two begins, that's chapter one, and then chapter two begins and he says, but wait, at the end of time, let me tell you what will be true. Let me tell you how this story is going to end. That into, if you're, you can, it, it's hard to do this, but if you can imagine reading chapter one or if you were a, the original audience of chapter one, you would have heard chapter one being preached by Isaiah, like in the temple courts. If you heard chapter one preached, you just heard the worst possible reality that you can imagine. You just heard the worst possible news. Chapter one says that judgment and exile and devastation is coming. And now in chapter two, here's what he says. He says, even though Jerusalem's gonna be a wasteland, even though Zion is gonna be consumed, one day it will be the center of the world again. One day, heaven and earth will be united together again. One day, the world will be Eden again, and it will start in Zion. Zion will be the place. And again, it's not literal. It's not saying that's the place that Jesus is returning. It's saying all of your hopes for what that city represents will be true of the world. And you need to know, Israel, you need to know, Israelites, that no matter what you're about to walk through, the judgment that's coming no matter what decimation you're about to walk in and what exile you're about to be in, you need to know that no matter what circumstances you faced, a better end is coming. Why does he do that? Why does he follow up the awful news of chapter one with chapter two and the news of the ultimate end? And this is where it gets real. It's because it's into the place it's into the very places of massive disappointment that hope lives. Isaiah writes chapter two to give the people hope. And he gives it to them after telling them how bad it's going to be. Because in that place, if you're gonna make it through that place, if you're gonna survive in that place of massive disappointment, you're gonna need hope. So what is hope? Hope is humanity's projections of their future. It's simple. Hoping is casting our desires into the future of what isn't true yet. I hope that this becomes true. 
We hope for a future that's different from our present. And so this, is, this was kind of alarming to me this week because I was studying this idea of hope. I read a lot on it. Hope is not a subjective attitude, meaning hope is not positive thinking. Hope is not optimism. Hope is also not, please hear this, Christians, hope is not a spiritual discipline. That's kind of reorienting. Wait, wait, wait. I thought I needed to practice hope. No, you're always hoping. You're never not hoping. All that hoping does is show you what you are hoping in. Hoping is your expectation of what is coming to you in the future. And so if you want to know what you are hoping in, think about what you believe is coming to you. See, the moment that we experience pain or discontentment or disappointment or tragedy, the moment that there's discord in relationships, the moment that our hopes get dashed, the moments that our longings go unmet in any arena of our life, any football game, any job interview, any marital discord, any child that is far off, anything, any moment that we experience the pain and the ache of now, guess what you start doing inherently? You start, you start hoping. You start projecting out, I wonder what this will be like. Let me roll this tape out. I didn't get this job. This relationship is still strained. I, I'm still addicted to this thing. And the moment that we experience the pain of reality right now, you immediately start hoping. We immediately start envisioning a future based on our present. And that future is either full of one of two things. It's either full of beauty or despair. It's either going to, my future is either going to redeem and release me from my pain or I will always be stuck in this pain. But please make no mistake, both of those options, you were either hopeful or hopeless, but it's still centered around hope. You are still projecting out what will my future be like, what's coming to me in my future. And so what the Bible does constantly is it comes to us and it reorients us to the reality that we are placing our hope in. And the Bible's constantly asking us this question. What future do you think awaits you? What do you think is coming to you in a future that you cannot control? What do you think is coming to you? What do you think awaits you? What do you think lies on the other side of the horizon from where you can't see? What do you think is around the corner? What do you think will happen to your current reality in the end? And then the Bible has the audacity to invite us into this. Bring all of your pain. Bring it all. Bring all of your disappointment, bring all of your questions, bring all of your doubt, bring all of your angst. Bring everything that is real about you right now and dare to believe that that's the place that hope lives. In the middle of your pain, in the middle of your discontent, that's where hope lives. Would you answer this question honestly? Where do you go or what do you do with the place in your life where you have longings, where you have desires, where you have groanings, and that place hits the wall of reality. What do you do with the things that you've worked for, labored for, pined for, hungered for, sacrificed for, and that place hits the wall of what is? when it crashes into the immovable object known as reality, what do you do when your longings and your reality don't line up? Do you immediately try to change that reality? Like I need to find a new, re I need to find a different reality. This current reality is not working, so I gotta find a different one. 
Are you full of despair, hopelessness? Do you get bitter? Do you try to numb the pain of the now? My longings aren't being met, so what can I do to insert and not have to feel this pain right now? What do you do when the cancer diagnosis is heart-wrenching? What do you do when the memories of your trauma haunt you in the middle of the night? What do you do with the sin that you can't kick but it keeps wounding you and wounding others around you? What do you do with divorce? What do you do with family relationships that are strained and broken? Are you hopeful or are you hopeless? See, because the Bible and Isaiah is inviting you to believe this, and this is, this is so hard to do. That's the place. That place is where hope lives. That's the place where hope gets born. See, if you hope for something that is not happening yet, my reality is not what I want it to be. My reality is not what I hoped it would be at this point. If you've longed for it, you've grown for it, you, it's not here yet though. If what you want to be true about you is not true about you right now, if what you want to be true about the world is not true about the world right now, then the only option you have, you have two options, hopeful or hopeless. But that's what hope is, is knowing that there's a reality out there that's different than the one that mine is in and I long for that one and I grown for it and I'm angry that it's not here, but I'm willing to wait for that place. See, hoping is waiting. That's what the book of Romans is what Paul, Paul uses this logic to try to explain what hope is. He says in Romans chapter eight, who hopes for what he already has? You can't hope for something that you currently have because hope is always a projection of the future. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for it, if it's not here right now, here's what he says, if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. The reality of hoping and waiting being inextricably tied together is so um, powerfully connected in the Hebrew language that the Hebrew word for hoping is the same Hebrew word for waiting. It's the same word. You cannot hope and not wait, and you cannot wait and not hope. And if we're going to be a people that learn how to hope, we have to be a people that is willing to wait. But we live in a culture, we live in a time, and I'm not like blaming the culture or culture wars. I'm saying like your heart has been trained in this current cultural moment to participate in a refusal to wait. We don't know how to wait. And it's not just because microwaves made us a people of instant gratification. That's not what I'm talking about. It is instant gratification, but that comes from a place that is, a, is we've been inbred, we've been indoctrinated, we've been trained, we've been discipled to refuse to wait. I want relief, and I'm unwilling to wait on that relief. Some people define addiction that way, in which I would say we're all addicts then. I want relief from my pain. I want relief from the angst that I'm feeling. I want relief from the disappointment that I'm feeling, and I'm unwilling to wait on that relief. I want a different reality than the one I currently have, and I'm unwilling to wait in the one I have, which means I'm unwilling to suffer. I'm unwilling to wait while I hope. And so, if we're gonna be a people of hope, we have to be a people that is able to live in and with the dissonance of what we long for and the reality of what is. I want my reality to be different, but it's not, and I'm okay in that place. We have to be willing to wait 
in reality because hope can only live in reality. Which means, you might go, oh man, that sounds so great. Thank you, Elliot. Which means, newsflash, it's gonna be really hard. If you're gonna deal with reality, if we're going to deal with reality, that means we have to deal with the present tense of our life, the present moment. Which means, if you're gonna deal with the present tense, it means you have to become intimate friends with the pain of now. The sadness of now, the sorrow of now, the dashed expectations, the unmet longings of now, the grief, the loss, the woe, the bad news, the reality of what is not right now. Have a mentor that says being present is a really lonely place because no one else is there. Because it's really difficult to actually be present in the present because that means you're gonna have to actually be honest about what you long for that isn't happening yet. That's gonna mean you have to deal with the loss that you've experienced. That means you're gonna have to deal with who you are today, not who you wish you'd be or who you thought you'd be. And continuing to deal with the reality of the present and the pain of the present, Man, I wish this wasn't true. But if you're gonna be, if we're gonna be a people of presence and a people of hope and a people who are willing to wait, it's not gonna make any of the pain go away. I really wish it would. I really wish that it was like a tit for tat. Like, all right, Lord, I'll get present in the pain. Just don't make me wait in this pain too long. If I get aware of it, won't that relieve me from it? Nope. In fact, Dealing with the present, dealing with the pain of now becomes, it means becoming so acquainted with the pain, so in tune with what is not that you know should be and you hope to be. It means it might get worse. Like the pain that you're trying to avoid right now might get worse. Because it's gonna mean having to deal with reality, which means, gosh, this is dark. Aren't you glad you came to Advent series, sermon series one? If you're gonna deal with the pain of now, you're gonna have to start realizing that everything you love, you will lose. And everything you long for may not get met in this life. It means dealing with the reality that things fall apart, relationships stay hard, and your circumstances and your situation may not get any better. They may get worse. See, hoping is not being an optimist. Hoping is not hallmark Christianity. Hoping is not slapping Bible verses on hard things and saying, I'm sure it will get better. Hoping is saying, I have no idea if it's gonna get better. But I'm not gonna numb or avoid the pain of it not getting better right now. And if you'll deal with reality like that, if we will deal with the pain of being fully present, we will begin to know what hope is. That, that's what Isaiah is doing here. That's why he inserts chapter two. And actually chapter two through four is all hope. It's all what's coming to Zion, chapter two through four. Let me give you, this is kind of Isaiah's rhythm. We'll see this. I'm gonna give you some really bad news. It's gonna be really bad. But one day it's gonna be great. But you need to know the really bad news. You need to know how excruciating the next season is gonna be. And you're gonna, if you're gonna survive that season, you need to know what's coming beyond it. That's what Isaiah does here. He's saying to Israel, Israel, your reality is about to get really bad. 
worse than you can imagine. You cannot conceive, Israelite, of the temple being decimated and having all the gold stolen from it and having the Ark of the Covenant being, being taken somewhere. You can't, you literally, it's so impossible for us to imagine the excruciating pain and the loss and the grief of that. It was so excruciating for Israel that an entire book is written about the decimation of Jerusalem and what that felt like. It's called Lamentations. It's the saddest book in the Bible. It's, it's just all lamenting over Jerusalem being destroyed. That's what Isaiah is saying to them is gonna happen. Hey, Israel, it's gonna be really bad and it's gonna stay bad for a really long time, worse than you can imagine, but it's not the end of the story. So Israel, put your hope in the end of the story. Put your hope in a place that your current circumstances can't touch. Put your hope in the future at the end of days that awaits you. That's the hope of Advent. That's the hope of this entire season. It is not a season to feel sentimental for a month so that your present pain is a little less burdensome. That's not what Christmas is about. It's not about imagining or pretending like your problems and your pain and your loss and your grief and your disappointments don't exist. It's a season to believe that the hope of a glorious future is alive and well. It's a season to believe that hope isn't dead. It's a season to believe that in your troubled marriage, in your troubled heart, and in this troubled world, those things don't get to write the end of the story. This is not the end. It's a season to believe that one day the world will beat its swords into plowshares. It's a season to believe that one day heaven and earth will be one again. And see, when Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah chapter two, the scholars call this the prophetic perspective. This is a little meta, but if you can imagine Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus, he's got this vision of what's coming. He's kind of looking down the linear timeline. And when he writes Isaiah chapter two and through four and into the book 55 through 65, there's all kinds of massive sections of hope of what's coming. Isaiah thinks that that day is coming because all he can see is straight down the timeline. He thinks that that day is coming when the Messiah comes. Isaiah thinks that when the first advent happens, it will be the end of days. Isaiah thinks that verse two through four will be the reality of the world when the Messiah King comes, when the suffering servant shows up. And he was right, kind of. That when Jesus was born in a manger 700 years later, heaven did come down to earth in the form of a person. And not only did heaven come down in Bethlehem, but the incarnation and the mission and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus was meant to be a foretaste of this very passage. Not in full, but in part. See, in verse two, we're told that when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom comes, that the world will be drawn to Zion and the world was drawn to Zion through Jesus. We're told in verse three that the world will be drawn to Zion and they will long for the revelation of the divine. And in Jesus, people were drawn to Zion and the revelation of the divine did happen in Zion. And then in the person of Jesus, we're told in verse four that one day that the swords will be beat into plowshares. Do you know in Jesus you have someone who literally beat his sword into a plowshare? For you. That Jesus 
took his instrument of war, took his instrument of wrath, and he turned it into an instrument of peace. This is exactly what the cross of Jesus is. It's the transformation of an instrument of war being transformed into an instrument of life. Jesus took the sword, the sword that he could have used on you. Jesus took that sword and he beat it into himself and turned it into a plowshare. He planted something in you through the sword being transformed into something greater. And literally, like verse four says, literally, this, this is the echo of what the first advent is meant to say to us. This is what verse four is trying to invite you into believing. Literally, between you and the Lord now, there is no more war. That war has been dealt with. That enemy has been defeated. The enemy of, the, of our actual enemy, Satan, but the enemy of God's wrath too that you deserve has been defeated. So literally now, because Jesus beat his sword into a plowshare, There's no more war between you and he. There's peace. That's the first advent. Echoes of this passage were true at Jesus' first coming. And now, because of his first advent, now because of what he did, because he beat his sword into a plowshare, we believe that what God has done in Jesus, bringing heaven and earth together and the whisper of that, the day of that dawning, will finally be achieved for the whole creation one day that we have hope that Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 will be true of the whole cosmos because Jesus already started that day. We have hope that Isaiah 2 through 4 is actually believable because Jesus has already paid the price to make that day happen. But not yet. And so now, we wait. And now we hope And we're waiting for the day when all the swords will be turned into plowshares. We're waiting for the swords of hatred in your home to be turned into something peaceful. We're waiting for the day where the swords of violence done to you and done against you will be used to plant a land full of beauty and lush and fruit and trees and flowers. That the scars that you carry, the things that you will carry with you into your grave, that day is coming where the swords that cause that pain, the wounds that you still have, one day those wounds will be transformed and it will be a garden of delight. We're waiting for the day when the swords of injustice and the swords of racism will be used as shovels to plant seeds of equity and justice. Waiting for that day. We're waiting for justice to roll down. We're waiting for the righteous king to come and do this in the world. We're waiting for the day when heaven and earth will be one again. And like we said, you're never not hoping for something. And you were made, you were made to hope in that Zion. You were made to hope in the Zion that's coming. You were made to hope in the Zion that is the garden where heaven and earth are one. In the words of the infamous Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, I read this recently and it it killed me. He said that even in mankind's most painful disappointments, we cherish a memory of our origin and our destination. We cherish a memory of our origin and our destination. That's what hope is. Getting in touch with your inherent memory of your origin, the garden, and of your destination, the kingdom come. 
read another French philosopher this week, came across some of his works. I love this. This is a little meta again, but this is the getting at the same thing. He said, hope is a memory of the future. It's somewhere deeply embedded in you, into your DNA, because you were made for heaven and earth to be one. Somewhere in your imago day is the hope of things to come. And hope is getting in touch with your inherent memory of your origin and your destination. And that's what Advent is all about. Christ has come. We celebrate it, we remember it, we retell it. But we tell that, we retell that to believe that Christ will come again. And one day, heaven and earth will be one again. So would you, Midtown, would you dare to hope in that day? And while we hope together, would you dare to wait for that day with patience? Let's pray. Jesus, we're a people of hope. We are called to set our imaginations and our, and our expectations and our longings on the day to come. And would you make us signposts of hope in this day? Signposts of hope, not because we are shouting and screaming and fighting culture wars, but would you make us a people of hope as signposts of hope because we're actually able to live in the dissonance of our longings and our reality. We are okay in the waiting because we know that this will not be the end. So make us patient. Make us hopeful. We pray, Jesus, this Advent season in your name. Amen.